Did you know that the disciples, many of the disciples had nicknames? Did you ever, did you ever pay attention to that? No, this, come on, y'all, hang with me. We're, we're not going to, I mean, I guess, I guess I asked for that. No, but really, though, this is, and there's actually some really cool nicknames. In fact, so much so that I think they could have formed their own, like, WWE wrestling team. Um, it's, it's, check this out. You, you have The Rock, of course, Peter, right? So you have The Rock. That was like a real wrestler, the Dwayne Johnson. Um, you have the tax collector, or maybe the bounty hunter would have been a better name for Matthew. You've got the betrayer, Judas. I'm serious. This is, this is cool. Hang with me on this, Audrey. I love your laughter. And then, of course, my favorite, you had the Sons of Thunder, can you picture this? I mean, these guys were bold. They were passionate. I don't know how athletic they were, but they had some really cool names. Of course, um, James and uh, uh, James the Greater and John. And the book that we've been studying for the last several weeks uh, was written by John, one of the sons of thunder, or also known as the son of Zebedee with his brother James. Now, he was different from John the Baptist. That was the, the you know, that New Testament hippie guy, the, the cousin of Jesus, who came before Jesus and said, someone far greater than me is yet to come and ultimately baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. Now, an interesting fact about this John, uh, the Apostle John, is, is that he was actually in Jesus' core group, his inner circle. Did you know they had core groups back then as well? Uh, Jesus had a core group. Uh, John, James, and uh, Peter were sort of his inner circle. And it was said about this John, that he was a disciple whom Jesus loved. And so they were sort of BFFs, if you will. Now, I want to set the tone, the setting for today's verse in uh, the book of John. And the time was the Passover. The Passover was a time for the Jews to sort of celebrate, um, eat together, fellowship together, and um, remember their liberation from Egypt some 1,300 years before that. As you may recall, Moses, the leader of you know, the Jews who became the Israelites, went to Pharaoh uh, in Egypt, and he requested some days off. They were sort of enslaved, and he came to Pharaoh and said, we'd like a little time to celebrate. And Pharaoh said, no. So Moses goes to God and he petitions to God and God says, yeah, that, that's not cool with me. And so God set forth the 10 plagues and the way that the 10 plagues sort of culminated was with the angel of death that was said to pass through every Egyptian household and take the life of each firstborn. But God was willing to spare the sacrifice of the firstborn for the Israel families if they were to sacrifice a lamb and then they would take that blood and they would paint it over the, the, the doorstep, the entrance to their homes. The angel of death would then pass over and spare the life of their firstborn. And so they were celebrating the Passover this whole week. Now, you may know that Jesus was crucified during the Passover. And it's not so coincidental that we call him the, the ultimate sacrificial lamb because he, his blood was shed once and for all to atone for, for sin so that also we would sort of elude death, right? We would have eternal life. And so this is the setting. Jesus and his disciples and all of the, the Jewish people were celebrating the Passover. 
Now, the, the past four chapters, John 13, 14, 15, and 16, uh, were recorded the words of Jesus to his disciples before he was going to leave them for good. Now, this particular evening that we're going to study today in John 17 is the night before the crucifixion. And so Jesus, as we learned before, he had washed the feet of his disciples. I don't know if you've really thought much about the importance of that. But for a king to wash the feet of just the average layperson, like that didn't happen. I mean, I was just trying to think in our culture today, what would that be like? How could we relate that? I don't, I don't know what it would be like, but imagine, imagine the president of the USA comes to your house and, and, and you have him cleaning your toilet or something. And maybe it was even more gross than that. And I don't know that Jesus had a bottle of pine saw and some rubber gloves sitting aside for this washing of the feet. They were, they were pretty gross. So, so we know that. And then he feeds them. He broke bread. They ate together. And that's where we get our communion from. That's when we take the bread and the, the juice to remember Jesus. He said that he broke bread, which was his body, and drank the wine, which was his blood. And then a little while later, after Jesus told Judas that he was going to betray Jesus, they send him off into the night, and then they take a walk. And on this walk, Jesus makes several promises, and he makes some pledges, but he also gives some warnings and some threats. And he tells his disciples that he's going to be leaving pretty soon. He's going to be going to the cross. He's going to die. And then he's going to go back with the father. And he promises the disciples everything that will need peace, joy, love, and you know, all of those sorts of virtues. And Jesus did many notable things that week, but this particular night, he did something remarkable. And you know what he did? He prayed. If you're thinking, well, what's so remarkable about that? Well, first of all, he, he didn't go down to the local tabernacle and party it up on his last night before leaving. He didn't go down to the local amusement park and ride those last rides. He didn't spend his time preparing his estate plan and his will. And he, you know, he didn't go out and just perform the last few miracles. He prayed. And one interesting thing about the New Testament, there's a lot of words in red. Now, you and I know those words in red means that that was the, you know, recorded words of Jesus. But there actually weren't many recorded prayers of Jesus. We're told he prayed, and we know, we assume that he prayed often. I, I would imagine that when it says that Jesus went away and retreated, he probably went away to pray. Uh, it's a fair assumption. But we don't get a lot of insight as to what he actually prayed. So John 17, which is the chapter that we're going to study today, is not only a a detailed account of one of the most beautiful prayers of Jesus, it's also by far the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the entire Bible. And it's a great example for the need for prayer. So here's the thing. If God, the Son of Man, who knows all things, uh, controls all things, has all power, dominion, and authority in all of the realms, Jesus, if he has the need to rely upon God the Father, how much more do you and I need to depend upon God? And if the one who was God was going to throw up one last Hail Mary, wouldn't you want to know what he he says? Certainly. Well, we're going to unpack that a little bit today. But here's what I want you to ponder. If you had one last night 
on earth and you knew it was your last night, what would you pray for? What kind of things would you seek God for and what would you say? So there's two key parts in what Jesus prayed in this prayer in John 17. The first few verses, uh, Jesus sort of talks about his relationship with God and he prays a little bit for himself. Okay, and in the second, probably, it's probably three-fourths of this chapter, Jesus prays for his disciples and all future believers. And he asks the Father to fulfill all the promises he has made and to honor all the good works that he's done. Now, in case you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, this, this message is titled the Lord's Prayer, but this isn't Matthew 6. You know, the one that's titled the Lord's Prayer. You're right, it's not. And isn't Matthew 6 a great example of Jesus praying? Well, actually, if you recall, Jesus said to his disciples, this is how you should pray when you pray. And you may also remember that Jesus said in that prayer to say, Father, forgive us of our sins. And we all know that Jesus didn't sin. So that, that's not a prayer that Jesus was praying for himself. In my opinion, John 17 is a much more suitable scripture to be called the Lord's Prayer. And I'm not going to read it to you, um, but I have this little video sort of um, montage of Jesus praying this prayer. And I think this will connect with you in a much deeper way. So um, watch this and please listen carefully to the words that Jesus prays. Father, the hour has come. Give glory to your Son, so that the Son may give glory to you. For you gave him authority over all people, so that he might give eternal life to all those you gave him. And eternal life means to know you, the only true God, and to know Jesus Christ whom you sent. I have shown your glory on earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. Father. Give me glory in your presence now, the same glory I had with you before the world was made. I have made you known to those you gave me out of the world. They belong to you, and you gave them to me. They have obeyed your word, and now they know that everything you gave me comes from you. I gave them the message that you gave me, and they received it. They know that it is true that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those you gave me, for they belong to you. All I have is yours. And all you have is mine. And my glory is shown through them. And now I am coming to you. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Holy Father, keep them safe by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one, just as you and I are one. While I was with them, I kept them safe by the power of your name, the name you gave me. I protected them, and not one of them was lost, except the man who was bound to be lost, so that the scripture might come true. And now I am coming to you and I say these things in the world so that they may have my joy in their hearts in all its fullness. 
I gave them your message and the world hated them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. But I do not ask you to take them out of the world. But I do ask you to keep them safe from the evil one. Just as I do not belong to the world, they do not belong to the world. Dedicate them to yourself by means of the truth. Your word is truth. I sent them into the world just as you sent me into the world. And for their sake, I dedicate myself to you in order that they too may be truly dedicated to you. I pray not only for them, but also for those who believe in me because of their message. I pray that they may all be one. Father, may they be in us, just as you were in me and I am in you. May they be one so that the world will believe that you sent me. I gave them the same glory you gave me, so that they may be one just as you and I are one. I in them and you in me. So that they may be completely one, in order that the world may know that you sent me, and that you love them as you love me. Father, you have given them to me, and I want them to be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, the glory you gave me. For you loved me before the world was made. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you. And these know that you sent me. I made you known to them, and I will continue to do so, in order that the love you have for me may be in them. And so that I also may be in them. Uh, it, it might have been that might have been what it was like to be with Jesus the night before he was crucified and to listen and witness the prayer that he just prayed. There's probably many sermons in that prayer alone. We have four books uh, in the New Testament called the Gospels of Jesus. And in those Gospels, we read a lot about the 33 or so years of Jesus's life and what he did on earth. But there's actually only one chapter in the entire Bible that, that really outlines what Jesus is going to be doing for all eternity. So if you've ever wondered, like, what is Jesus doing up there, you know, dancing on the clouds with God? Well, he, he's, probably, he's probably not playing 27 rounds of golf and drinking pina coladas every day. Um, he's probably not wandering down to the local Corvette dealership picking out the latest Z06 model. Um, he's probably not surfing indeed, uh, hoping to resurrect his career. Um, <clears throat> as we know, he already did that after he was buried, of course. If you paid attention, you saw that Jesus is actually beginning his eternal ministry in this prayer. And that ministry is interceding for you and me. What interceding means is to, is to intervene on behalf of somebody else. Or to act as their intermediary. And, and Jesus is doing that. He's petitioning to the Father for us. He's petitioning to the Father. Think of this. When you go to the grocery store and you're walking up to the front entrance, there's the person standing there with that little clipboard trying to make eye contact with you. What are they doing? What are they trying to do? Yeah, they're trying to, they're trying to petition you. Maybe they're trying to sell something. They're trying to petition you. They're trying to share with you their thoughts or their ideas and their truths. And they're trying to get your buy-in. So what do we do? 
<laughs> you know, you try to like sneak in the side and try to avoid ma- making eye contact. Maybe you don't really want to talk to them or maybe you, we're in a rush. And so we, we try, to, try to avoid those people. Well, Jesus is petitioning to the Father every moment of every day. And fortunately for us, God doesn't ignore Jesus. He's slow to anger and he's quick to listen. And the Father allows Jesus to convince him to be merciful and to forget and forgive our sins. I can just picture God up there like, man, this sump guy is just driving me nuts. He won't listen to me. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but Father, I, I poured out my blood for the final time, ultimately, so that you would forgive him, that you would wash those sins away. And I'm so thankful for that because if I'm being real with you, when you peel off the layers of this onion, I'm pretty frail and weak. And my past decisions and the decisions of others can, you know, bring me to my knees, and I'm sure many of you. And the burden of sin sometimes is so heavy that it feels like it's uncontrollable. It feels like it's unavoidable and that we can never be forgiven for those things. But as we learned last week at the end of chapter 16, Jesus consoles us when he said, Do not let the cruelty and sin of the world crush you. I have overcome it. Faith in Jesus assures us of a fresh start every day. When you wake up in the morning, you have a renewed mind. You have a renewed heart, a renewed outlook of optimism and hope for the present and faith that he is going to make it all right and take care of us. And more than that, that we will have eternal life in perfection. Jesus He spent so much time with his disciples sharing with them about what was going to happen. And I I think they heard him, but maybe they just weren't paying attention or maybe they just weren't mature enough to understand. When he said, I'm going away, I'm going to rise up from the grave, we read about it. It was like there was a disconnect for them. And if you're like me, sometimes I kind of give them a bad rap for that. I'm like, come on, guys, this is the king of king and lord of lords. And he's talking to you, telling you what's going to happen. And you're, you're just oblivious to it. But, you know, it's interesting because sometimes when I get ready to go I travel for work, my daughters and occasionally my son will say, Daddy, where are you going? And I'll say, well, I'm, I need to go away for a little bit. I'm going to be doing some work and I'm going to go work hard so that I can make a way for you and our family so I can provide for us so that I can help you have a more fruitful and prosperous life. And they don't really understand business and they just know I'm going away and they're Confident that I'm going to come back. I think, I mean, they, they, you know, I think they are. <laughs> um, when Jesus went away, he did so so that you and I could have a more fruitful life. He, he, he didn't leave just so that he could make a financial legacy for our children and grandchildren and so on. He left so that he could petition and work on the heartstrings of God. That he could ask God to give us his peace, his strength, his blessings, his power, his self-control, all that exists in heaven. And he couldn't give it when he was here. He could only give it when he went away. And so that would be like me going away on a trip but not coming back. However, it's like I thought enough in advance to set up sort of a, a trust for my kids and a trust for my family. And as they get older, they receive the fruit of that trust. Um, 
you know, only until they're mature enough to really realize that was for their good and that I set it up in advance will they really start to understand it. And Jesus did the same for his disciples. And you know what? I don't think most of us in here were fortunate enough to inherit a trust, I would imagine. But you know what? Every single one of us is a trust fund kid in the kingdom of heaven. Every one of us. And the only way to access the keys to that trust is to lay your life at the feet of the cross, submit it to Jesus. And we did that last week when sort of symbolically when we pulled the cross up and we all put our poker chips. We're saying, I am willing to put it all on the line to pick up my cross and to follow Jesus. And I hope that was more than just a gesture. I hope that was really an outpouring of how you feel about your faith and your walk and your heavenly resting place. It's a perfect trust fund that Jesus set up for you and I when he went away. And I think after he left, the, G- the disciples started to understand and experience that a little bit better when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. They started to realize that power that Jesus had was also available to them. And guess what? It's available for you and I as well. So now that we know that John 17 is a really unique and important prayer of Jesus, let's, let's break it down a little bit better to understand its importance. And so as I mentioned earlier, there are, there are two parts in chapter 17. The first part, Jesus prays for himself. Now, that's not so surprising probably when you think about what Jesus was getting ready to go through. He knew what he was about to experience. So you would imagine that he's praying and crying out. But actually, um, the real outpouring of that, the the, the emotion and the tears, remember the the sweat that had blood in it, that came just a short while later in the Garden of Gethsemane in the next chapters. But here, look at what Jesus says in verses 4 and 5. He says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. And you know what Jesus is saying? He's like, God, you took me out of my perfect place. You ripped me out of there. You threw me down into hell on earth. And I just want to go back to that glory. Can you just take me home? And so I think about, you know, when we were on vacation this week, went to San Diego with our family and had a really nice time. And, you know, it rained for a while. We had some sunshine and and our little son was having one of those almost three years old weeks. And it was a little bit trying. And as fun as vacation is, I think we all would probably agree that it feels pretty good to get back home to get back into your bed and your routine and to be able to cook for yourselves and, and all that stuff. Not that vacation's not great, but I think Jesus is saying like, I want to go home and sleep in my own bed. I want to be back with daddy and all of the angels and the heavenly council. I want to go back, Lord, bring me back to glory. And then secondly, he prays for the disciples and also the future believers. He says, uh, I'm not praying just for the world. But for, he says, but for those who God gave them and him and who, those who God gave them are the disciples, his followers. And so in verse seven, we want to take a minute to look at how Jesus describes the disciples. He affirms the disciples understood that everything he had came from God. He says they understand it. There's, there's a lot of gods to choose from. 
And we know that there are, there are battles in the spiritual realm and there are evil forces. There's all kinds of ways to access that. But they knew that everything he had came from God the Father, Yahweh. And then in verse 8, Jesus affirms that the disciples accepted his teachings and they believed. They knew with certainty that the Father sent him. And so a true follower of Jesus, in my opinion, should be able to answer these two questions. First of all, Jesus' miracle-performing power and his sinless self-control, where did those come from? Okay, where did those come from? I think all of us in here, at least in our cerebral minds, understand that that came from God. Hopefully you would agree with that. And secondly, do you accept Jesus' teachings? Like all of his teachings. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think I do. I'm pretty sure I do. Well, I don't, I don't even know if I know all of his teachings, but the ones I do, I'm pretty sure that I accept. But you know what he did in, in verses 6 and 8? He actually suggests to us, how do we know when we really accept his teachings? And, and you know what he says that we would do if we accept them? He said we would obey them. And, and I want to talk about that for a minute, because if you go to the book of James, which is written by Jesus' half-brother, not James, the son of thunder, In there, James talks about this concept that, that, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said that faith leads to action. And the way he really says it is faith without works is not real faith. And that's so important because if you and I really believe the teachings of Jesus, then there ought to be some sort of behavioral action that corresponds with that faith and those teachings. Jesus' standard isn't that we're perfect and that we obey all of them perfectly, but we work toward that obedience not just to satisfy a a legalistic God, but to honor our faith and to represent the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. So to this point, Jesus was really just, I think he was making a case about himself and about the disciples. Picture, have any of you ever served on jury duty or been in a courtroom during a jury trial? Yeah, there's several of us. I was on a, a week and a half long murder trial in Jefferson County a number of years ago. That was fascinating, uh, sad, but fascinating. And one of the things, if you, and maybe you've even seen this on TV, but one of the first things that the, the attorneys do is they make their case to the judge or to the jury and they build a foundation and they start saying, let me, let me tell you about what, let me tell you about the setting Let me tell you a little background about the people. And they make a case. And I think that's sort of what Jesus has done to this point. He's made a case about himself and about the disciples and what happened on earth. And what he does next is that he starts to ask God for things on our behalf. And the first thing that Jesus asks for is for God's protection. So he says in John 17 verses 11 and 12, and I think this is going to come up on the screen. He says, Holy Father... Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be as one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them, and I kept them safe by that name you gave me. And then Jesus is sort of proud to say that none has been lost except for that one who is doomed to destruction. Of course, that was Judas, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But Jesus basically says, God, in my care, they were protected. And he's he's saying to him, I'm going to go away. And I ask, I pray, God, that your protection would remain on them. And so if you've ever wondered why we often end prayers with, in Jesus' name, I think that's a pretty good example 
of, and Jesus is saying that he's saying, in my name, protect them. This scripture highlights why we're to proclaim the name of Jesus. And that last worship song that we sang this morning, what a beautiful name it is, and there's power in the name. I want to just bring something to all of your attention. The name Jesus or Yeshua in the Jewish culture was actually a pretty common name. The name itself really doesn't have any power. It's, a, it's the powerful power behind the name that gives it power. Let me give you an example. Police officer running after a suspect yells, stop in the name of the law. What he's saying is that there's power in the law and he is invoking that power, demanding that the suspect stop. And so when we pray for things, and we know that the, the name of Jesus in scripturally has a lot of power, it has the power to save, the power to heal. Uh, we read that uh, scriptures that write, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will grant to you, of course, within his will. It's saying that there's power behind the name. And it's, it, even evil forces use Jesus' name. But he's saying here, protect them by the power of my name, the name you gave me. And so we ought to understand that there's power. And when you... Uh, incite the name of Jesus, you are saying that, yes, I know the power that Jesus had, and I too have that power, and it's in his name that power is given to me. Moving on to verse 13, the next verse. Jesus prays for the full measure of Jesus to be in us, uh, of his joy, rather. The full measure of Jesus' joy to be in us. And he says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Now take note, I don't really, I don't really think that Jesus in this verse was praying for like this blissful, you know, wealthy, super perfect Western world life, that kind of joy. I don't think that's what he was praying for. And why is that? Well, remember last week at the end of that scripture in verse 16, uh, Jesus promised us that we were going to have difficulties. He didn't promise us that the joy that we have would always be this surreal felt joy. Now that happens when wonderful moments and blessings and prayers are answered. We feel joy, but he's not talking about this joy here. I think that he's talking about the kind of joy that Paul and Peter and John uh, all wrote about later in the scriptures. The kind of joy that breeds perseverance and maturity in our walk with him. Like the supernatural kind of joy. That's the one that Jesus is referring to. And he says, Lord, let that joy be with them. The same way I'm finding joy in this persecution. And in verse 14, the next verse, Jesus says that the world hated them because they're not of the world. So I ask the question, should we always be liked? And this is something that I posed to our home group a few weeks ago because it's a question that I've wrestled with so many times. And, and what I think to myself is, is how many feathers have I ruffled lately because of the gospel of Jesus? How deep is my conviction and my faith in Jesus that I, and how boldly am I professing that? And, and does my life really depict Jesus? Because if it does, then it's pretty clear that I'm going to face some pretty serious opposition. And so you, you ought to think to yourself, like, if you're really living out this faith that is deeply rooted in you, a faith that atheists uh, 
Penn Jillette, you know, from the Vegas show says that if what you believe about heaven and hell is really true, how much must you hate a person not to share that with them? If that is how convicted you are about your faith, you're probably going to rub somebody wrong. Now, I'm not saying that we should all walk around trying to be hated by people, but I am saying that we ought to probably be willing to accept some hatred from some people because of what we believe, because of us walking out our faith in Jesus. Now, this next verse is one of my favorites in this whole prayer. In verse 15, even though it's going to be a pretty difficult life for the disciples, and they probably want to not want to deal with it and say, God, just take me now. Jesus asked God not to take them out of the world. (laughs) Instead, he requests that God leave them there and protect them from the evil one once again. Now, I know why Jesus asked God to leave them there. You, You probably do too. It's because if he didn't, there's a pretty good chance that that gospel message wouldn't have made it 2,000 years to hang out with us to these lovely Jesus-fearing people at Novation Church. That we wouldn't have that message to share with others so that they can come to the saving grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then they can be in the presence of their maker for all eternity. Thank God that Jesus (laughs) asked him to say, to leave them in the world. It was necessary. And you know what? One day, it might be necessary for you to sacrifice everything to share the gospel. And I want you to note that in verse 16, Jesus affirms that we are to be set apart. And do you know what that means? It means that that's, that's the definition of being holy. It means to be different, to be set apart from the world. And, and, and so if your life is oozing Jesus-loving, God-fearing Christianity, and we should look and act different from the rest. And if you're a little apprehensive about that, like I am sometimes, you just cry out to the Lord and you could just say, God, forgive me in my doubt and forgive me in my timidity, but could you give me a little pep in my step? Could you give me a little bit of boldness and confidence to go to that employer or that employee or to go to that that deal and to share the love of Christ with somebody despite the outcome. Next, in verse 17, Jesus prays and asks God to sanctify us by the truth. And what does he say that the truth is here? His word. Saying what we now know as the scriptures is the truth. Now, sanctification is really just another way to describe becoming a more mature follower or disciple of Jesus. And I've got really good news for you because at Novation Church, that's what we're all about. We are, our ultimate goal is to help everyone in this church become more mature, become more like Jesus in our walk together. Not just showing up on Sundays to hear world-class jokes and to, you know, to occasionally participate in a barbecue, but to dig into the Word together, to join home groups, to have life partners to walk with and share with and to grow spiritually. And clearly there's no replacement for the Word of God. The Scriptures as often as possible. In verses 20 to 23, I want you to notice here that Jesus takes a step further than just praying for his disciples. 
He says, my prayer is not for them alone. He says, I also pray for those who will believe in me through this message. You know who that is? That's us. And it's such a blessing that Jesus chose to pray for every future believer at this time. He, he took advantage of that moment before he left and said, you know what? Not just the people that sold out for me here. He said, everyone in the future who will sell out for me. And then Jesus appeals to God that we would be united. United. And look at the intended outcome. At the end of the, the, this, this section of scripture here, he said that the world would know Jesus is the son of God, that last sentence, and that he would, they would know, all of the people would know that God loves them effectively as the, his sons and daughters. You know what he's saying? He's saying that love and complete unity are the aroma of Christ. Love and unity are the binding agents that bring people to him. And John 13, 35 says, they will know you are my disciples by the way you love. He's saying, it's going to be obvious by how you love and how you unite together. And you know what? I want to share with you that I, I am so proud of Novation Church. We are not perfect, but you know what we do a pretty darn good job of? Is finding a way to find common ground in unity d- despite our, you know, widely varying political views, social class, you know, the way we understand scriptures. In other words, we choose not to let what makes us different cause indifference. And that's beautiful and powerful. And I love that about our church. And I want that to always be the case. We know from 2 Peter 3, 9, it's God's will that no man should perish. He said, um, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And in verse 24, the last verse in this chapter We see Jesus actually petitioning to God to allow us to be with him in heaven. We know it's God's will. And here it is, Jesus asking the Father, Lord, I know that's your will. Please let them come to be with me. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory and the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Jesus recited many times in chapter 17, that we would know God. And it begs us to ponder the question, how do you really know someone? Those of you who are married, how did you get to know your spouse? You date them. You spend time. You ask them questions. You meet their parents. You you go snoop in their medicine cabinet in the bathroom. I didn't do that to you. You definitely want to find out what football team they root for. But, but, the thing is, but the thing is, you spend time with them. You spend time with them. So my, my challenge to you this morning is each day spend a little bit more time with God in hopes that you would know him like Jesus knew him or at least like Jesus wanted us to know him. And then spend a little bit more time each day pondering your expectations for this life. Because if you're expecting a perfect, smooth, saving life, you're going to be disappointed. And we know the promises that we're going to have trials and tribulations. Jesus' disciples, they literally sacrificed everything for the sake of the gospel. 
And God honored that willingness and that desire, and he did some incredible things through them. And so if God asked you and me to lay down everything and sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel, how would that change your daily life? How would that recalibrate what your expectations are for this life if that was the only thing that mattered? Because that's all that mattered to the disciples. And remember, there's beauty in trials and challenges. And the reason that those are so beautiful is because in those moments, you will be forced to rely upon God like you never have to rely on him otherwise. What matters to God is that we find a sustainable amount of joy and peace so that we can carry out the God-given purpose he put on every one of our lives. So pray with me. God, we thank you so much that you made a way for us despite our sin, our wretchedness, our flaws and our failures. You made a way through Jesus for us to be right with you and that your love is unconditional. It is not merit-based. But we know it's pretty clear that the, the level of conviction we have about you and about Jesus will manifest itself in the way we live our lives. God, recalibrate our expectations today. God, recalibrate our mindset on what is most important to you. But also, let us remember to celebrate and to find joy in those good feelings as well when you do bless us and provide for us, when you do miracles. We praise you. We thank you for Novation Church. Continue to let us be loving and united in what matters most. And that's Jesus and his resurrection power. We praise you and love you, Father. Amen.